Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Kit O'Malley. Kit has been one of the leading mental health advocates for several years through her widely known social media presence and her groundbreaking blog, which has chronicled her lifelong journey with bipolar disorder. Her goals are to affect change, break down barriers to care, and to educate people about mental illness. Kit's perspective is additionally unique in that she is trained as a psychotherapist, and she practiced for a time as a licensed mental health professional. Kit is a supporter of the podcast, and her book, Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life, provides us a finite roadmap and brutally honest glimpse inside the daily frustrations living with mental illness. Kit's writing recounts two decades it took to receive a proper diagnosis and how her journey gave her purpose. Welcome, Kit, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. I noticed that you organized your book, which I read, great book, uh, into five themes. Uh, I will try to follow those themes in our discussion. Would you explain why those themes uh, were important to you? Well, it's it's interesting. The first, my first edition of the book just sort of chronologically dumped my blog posts, <laughs> and it just wasn't. I knew it needed to be organized, um, and so when I went back and rewrote the book, um, I uh, got help with the developmental editor, and he read stuff, and we discussed what what were the themes, you know, in my okay. blog and in what I've written. And we came up with these themes and then organized the writing into those themes. Um, and that enabled it to be more cohesive and have an introduction to, you know, uh, you know theme and yeah. then organize the, the, the topics, the blog posts in, in that, in that theme. Okay. And so they were, um, you know, it's been so long since I wrote the book. <laughs> even <since> I- <laughs> information for you. So I probably won't even remember what the themes are, but I do know that they included, you know, um, living with bipolar, being a caretaker, um, mental health advocacy. Well, that's three of them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good. well I, I know what they are, so better. I'm going to follow them. <laughs> uh, let's first talk about your mental health journey. Tell us about your years growing up before college. And when did you first know uh, that you needed help for your mental health? Yeah, I actually didn't know until I was a freshman at UCLA. Um, before that, I mean, I moved a lot. I had a, my, you know, we followed my father's career. Uh, we moved from coast to coast and overseas. So I had an interesting upbringing, uh, sort of what is described as a third culture kid. And I lived in Saudi Arabia for five years and a third culture kid, similar to actually living with a mental illness and that you're sort of outside of your parents' culture and yeah. outside of the culture you're living in. Sure. Um, and so you learn to sort of straddle these worlds um, and to see different perspectives. And that actually helped me. I think that upbringing helped me to a certain extent in dealing with mental health and also in being a provider because I'm able to have that perspective of being able to be inside and outside of, of something. So tell us, when, when did you first know that... Uh that you needed help? 
I, when I was 18, I, at UCLA, I became suicidal. Um, and I, at first I had suicidal, just suicidal ideation. And then finally one day I had gathered the means, um, you know, I'd gathered a bunch of pills together. Um, I wrote a suicide note. I had scheduled a time that I was going to go make this phone call. And then I was going to take the medication and leave the suicide note. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, me, you know, looking at myself, oh my gosh, this time I'm actually going to do it. And so what I did was I called a friend, um, who lived, um, in the dorms. And I said, would you please come over and hang out with me? And I went to my resident assistant on the floor of the dorms. And I said, I need to see somebody today. Um, so I was saw a, a psychologist at UCLA who practiced cognitive behavioral therapy. And I did that, which helped me sort of get through the crisis and just stopping those uh, beliefs, those thoughts, and sort of re rewriting them. Um, and, and, you know, trying to you know, contain um, that crisis. So that was when I knew um, that I had depression and it was a very severe depression. It was, uh, I wouldn't wish that hell on anybody. Right. Right. And it's amazing because when you look at people's depressive thoughts, they're the same thoughts, you know, yeah. where all of these people with all different sorts of experiences and lives, so it's like, and they have exactly the same script and it's, it's just, it's amazing how that is. What were your working years like? And tell us about meeting your future husband and becoming a mother. Okay. Well, I was a workaholic. So I, I ended up graduating a, um, with a, I started out as a biochem major. I wanted to be a doctor. And then because of the suicide um, uh, ideation and, and uh, you know, um, the, the depression, I, I quit that and um, ended up uh, graduated from Berkeley um, as a legal studies major. And I wanted to see if I wanted to become a lawyer. So I became a legal assistant and I worked crazy hours, like until 1030 at night. Yeah. And I would just, I would just do that and I would crash and then I would start again and I would crash. And so I would, I, I did that. Um, I ended up crashing, taking time off and going to grad school, becoming a psychologist, uh, not a psychologist, a, a, um, a master's level psychotherapist licensed in California. Um, I treated severely emotionally disturbed um, adolescents and pregnant and parenting teenagers. And I worked in a battered woman shelter when I was in grad school as an administrator. And so I did that until I, again, burned out depression, severe depression, couldn't get out of bed. Um, and, um, and I ended up having to, you know, I, I went to a psychiatrist was given medications and started to become ramp up to mania and had a week of severe mania. Um, tried to get up by my bootstraps after that. My parents, my friend actually called my parents to come up and help. They're like, Kit needs help now. And she did the same with my church. So the priest, Kit needs help now. Would you please go and intervene? Right. And I tried with my parents' help to get back up on my feet and just take the temp job. And I just wasn't able to do it. So I moved back in with my parents, and sort of rebuilt um, from the ground up, you know, going to psychiatrists and therapists. And um, I, I ended up having a, commercial, uh, a, a career in commercial real estate for a decade. Um, but again, I still was, I wasn't diagnosed bipolar, even though I'd had that week of mania, because yeah. they considered it um, what they call iatrogenic, which is caused by the medication. It was caused by the treatment um, is what how they saw it at that time. Um, and so um, I uh, 
but I did the same thing in terms of being a workaholic. Um, um, and then, um, oh, well, right before I moved, actually, when I was still going through this crisis, yeah. my sister and her um, then boyfriend came and visited me. And I heard from her boyfriend that he had four brothers. And I was like, four brothers? Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> to LA. If any of them are going to be in LA, you right. know. You know, hook us up. Give me the number. And it turned out that he had a brother who was single who was moving to Southern California. And so we ended up dating too. And a year after they married, we married. Um, so in the midst of all this crisis, I, I met my soulmate. I mean, we're still married. So that was a long time ago. And um, it'll be 25 uh, years we've been married. 25 now. years. Wow. Yeah. Great. Congratulations. Yeah. So, Yeah. And he, he actually, on one of our first dates, and here I was, you know, working as, just started as a temp file clerk, right. former psychotherapist, now working as a file clerk, living with my parents at 31. And my husband, my here's then date, said, you know, you are the most independent woman I've ever met. And I just started to laugh. And I'm like, I'm living with my parents. I'm living <laughs> as a file clerk. How can you say I'm independent? He's like, no, really, you are. And um, actually, I've been told, like, it, he just saw who I was rather yeah. than the illness, which right. was great. You know, yeah. He saw beyond my circumstances of where wh what my brain was going. Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I, I kind of knew he was, he was a good guy. Um, so yeah, we've been uh, married a long time. We had a, a son and when I had the son is when I, at one point when he was about 27 months old, I started to have um, these euphoric symptoms again. And I realized, wait a minute, this is hypomania or mania. You know, I have to, I can't, um, I, I realized as a mother, I could not let this go. You know, I could not. So I um, got treatment um, um, and, um, and ended up on actually getting, um, falling apart again, even though I was getting treatment and was uh, hospitalized. And I actually haven't been back to work since then. That was when my son was four. Um, so um, he was, uh, he um, would come every night. He wouldn't eat dinner until he was with the, the three, until the three of us were together. And my son would have dinner um, at the hospital. They had like leftovers from when we, cause we just, visitors came just after dinner. And so yeah. we'd sit and we'd have what my son would call, he was four dinner as a family and he just was a highlight to all the of the evening to all the other patients because I bet yeah it was just and he'd be playing checkers you know and it, it was with my husband and stuff it was really it was really sweet it was nice to, to have that. what what coping skills did you use to get through the to get through those days um, well, I, I've always been a believer in, um, well, I wasn't medicated until I was 30. I did psychotherapy before that. So as my illness progressed over my lifetime, I turned to medication in addition to psychotherapy. So I, I've used those as my two main coping mechanisms. Um, and I also have used writing as you know, um, later in my life as, you know, starting with the blog, yeah. I mean, I was somebody who journaled occasionally before that. Um, and I, um, I'm, I, I am always somebody who gets help when I need help. And I'm, I explain to people what's going on. So even if I might not look like it, cause I might have good coping mechanisms of look, you know, yeah. I explain this is what's going on. So I think, you know, in a way, 
and in a way, I have intellectualization as being one of my coping mechanisms. Right. I mean, pe- people don't know just looking at you. Right. You know, right. I mean, if they yeah. saw you in the store, right. they're going to know anything's going on. Right. You know? Right. right. Uh, so. Let's talk about your bipolar thoughts. Can you tell our audience the differences between what's called bipolar one and bipolar two? Right. Um, Actually, interestingly enough, I thought I had bipolar two way after I actually apparently was diagnosed bipolar one. So the main, one of the differences was that I was told is if you need to be hospitalized, you're bipolar one. Okay. Um, so, um, I mean, my hospitalization was voluntary, but still, if you need hospitalization to stabilize, that means you're bipolar one. Okay. Um, bipolar two is um, less severe. It's really a matter of it being a spectrum illness. And so bipolar two, you have cyclothymia, which is very mild, just sort of like more intense mood swings than normal. And then bipolar two, is the, so that is also sometimes called bipolar swings. Bipolar two is um, has hypomania. So rather than have mania, it has like this milder version, and 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 depression, um, and um, but not needing medica- not needing well you might need medication, but not needing hospitalization. And then bipolar one can have uh, a severe mania um, with um, you know which it, and and that can range from um, you know sometimes having psychotic thoughts to just just being something that's very that interferes more with your life than say a hypomania would so so when i'm i'm experienced hyper when i experience because even within you know because i'm medicated i might experience hypomania hypomania might be racing thoughts you know trouble falling asleep irritability as opposed to not being able to sleep for a week you know what I mean, or, you know, a psychotic thought process, um, things like, things like that. So it's really a matter of degree. Okay. Yeah. Like you said, it's a spectrum. Tell us what you mean by being the outsider and what kind of thoughts did you have to deal with and talk about, uh, the mood swings. Okay. Um, I felt like an outsider actually before I was ever diagnosed as bipolar, because I think I moved so much. I was always going from one culture to another. Um, and, you know, going from like the East coast to the West coast or, or going from Saudi Arabia to Massachusetts, you know, very extreme culture changes. Um, and similar to that, having a mental illness and having thought processes, which are distinctly different than normal thought processes, you feel like an outsider because people really don't know what's going on inside your head. And you really don't know, are other people thinking this way? Right, <laughs> so, right. You know, it's just like, well, I don't know. You know, so do other people feel like pushing people in front of the BART, stage, the BART train? You know, I mean, I didn't do any of these things, but I had to like fight with different impulses and thoughts that were irrational um, and did not, um, didn't were, uh, I guess what you would call in the biz, ego dystonic. They did not sync with my sense of self. Okay. okay. So that I didn't have like uh, feelings behind that, or it, it just, it did not make sense to me that I was uh, thinking these things or feeling like doing these things because they were just so off the wall. Um, so I, I wouldn't do them and I would struggle with these thoughts. And I had some very disturbing thoughts and impulses, but I would, you know, stop myself. You know, I mean, I wouldn't do it. I just would 
just observe the thought right. and let it go. Um, so, and luckily some of the cognitive behavioral therapy helped with that. And also, um, you know, just in training my brain. And I also was somebody who used to, um, actually do some self-harming and we dissociate. And I guess the good part of that is in, in dissociating, you kind of remove yourself. So you learn how to remove yourself. I, I so stop the self <laughs> keeping the being able to look observe yourself from afar. Um, gotcha. Get the, the, that's the name outsider. Uh, what were uh, what are some of the challenges of parenting and caretaking uh, when you when you're struggling with your own mental illness? Yeah, it's it's hard. I think that one of the things that became clear to me once I became a mother was that um, I had to be stable to be a good mother. You know that I had a responsibility to my son to, um, you know, do everything I could do to be as stable and as healthy mentally as I could. Um, and, and I ended up having a very high needs son, um, who struggled with ADHD and anxiety and depression and migraines, which were kind of all, you know, tied in together. The migraines and anxiety and depression are often tied in together because it's just so horrible as a two-year-old having these horrible migraines. Um, so he uh, he he struggled with his with that and and then parenting him was a struggle too. Luckily, I had clinical experience as a psychotherapist working with children and adolescents, so I was able to bring those skills to the table. Um, and um, and I just was very proactive. I took him to see a child psychologist when he was four, and he was seeing a child psychiatrist when he was five. So you know, I just knew no. You, you help your kid. Yeah. Um, very proactive. So yeah. Very proactive. And now he's very, he's a, a successful 21 year old young man. He, he is going to college. He's living independently. I mean, he's de- dependent on us financially because he's a college student, but he's living independently in his own apartment. So he's very successful. And so um, I'm a huge believer in early intervention. Absolutely. So when people say, don't medicate your kids, I'm like, well, either he had been, he wanted to be medicated. He did not, he did not like how he behaved when he wasn't medicated because he was, he would get, this red zone and, and, and act out violently. But when he was medicated for his ADHD, he, he was able to, when he was very young, he was able to go to school and function. Um, so, you know, with his peers, um, and that was very important to him. Kit, what advice would you give to someone trying to balance work or parenting, uh, with caring for their own mental health? What advice would you give them? I would say your mental health comes first because you can't do the other things without first taking care of yourself. Okay. And I, I didn't always do that. You know, I was a workaholic. I did. I people with bipolar are, are easily taken advantage of by people who, cause I was super productive. <laughs> I, bet. I was extremely productive. You probably and, won some and, awards. I'm sure. Yeah, so I just I was, and but that's not good for you to work until 10 p.m., 11 p.m. at night. No, you know you you have to have balance in your life. Right. Um, and when you're a parent, even more so. 
Yeah. You know, so as, as, as an individual, you need to take care of yourself. And then as a parent, you need to take care of yourself also because that child or children need you to be the best parent possible. That's great advice. Tell us, uh, do the seasons uh, and hormonal changes affect it? Affect bipolar? Everything affects me. <laughs> so, so Everything, all right. Yeah, I mean, I, this when it, the the days are shorter, that means you're getting less light, and so more light. Right. I'm more I'm I'm more likely to become depressed. Um, when when the days are longer, um, and I'm getting more light, I'm more likely to become hypomanic. When I'm overstimulated in any way, like socially, for example, if I get overstimulated, um, I, I I start to ramp up, and I. Um, and when I'm understimulated, I get depressed. So everything is a balancing act. Everything. It's all a balancing act for me. And I have to be very careful. So in 2013, your blog is born and your father-in-law is seriously ill. Tell us about expressive writing and the reason you write and eventually wrote the book. Yeah, well, it's my, um, my father-in-law was, um, had, uh, suffered sepsis and then, and then when he was in the hospital got, had a stroke. And so my husband went up with his siblings and, uh, to, to be there. Um, and he, at the very beginning, it was just touching though. And it, um, I became so anxious. It triggered um, hypomania in, in me. Um, and I had to cope with, and I think it triggered some anxiety knowing, oh my gosh, this is the time of our life where our parents are, um, are at that might die. <laughs> our parents are older, like all of a sudden it hit home. Like this yeah. is the, this is the chapter that we're in, in our lives right now. Um, you know, my, my father-in-law might pass. My father-in-law's had this very serious, severe illness and then a stroke. And, um, and um, in order to cope with it, I had to write just to get out thoughts. Sure. And so that's how the blog was born. I sort of always, I had designed websites professionally, like as not professionally as my primary profession, but I was, I'd be in a job and I'd be like, oh, you need a website, you know? So I design a website or, oh, you need a database or, oh, you need, you know, whatever. So I had already designed websites. And when I designed my first website and, you know, registered the first URL, which is the website address, I imagined or I visualized kidomalley.com and I visualized, and this was way before I ever started blogging, I visualized putting my writing on kidomalley.com. So for some reason, I always knew I would do it. <laughs> yeah, you had, that, you had that inkling right away. I knew it was going to happen. So, um, and so that was the trigger that got me to start writing. As a blogger, do you, do you interact with your followers? Yes. I mean, I, I have been inactive since my mother passed, my mother passed. And then right afterwards in January, 2020, my mother passed and right afterwards the pandemic came out and it was just a lot for me to cope with. And, you know, and my husband working at home and it's just uh, my son not being at school is just, it was a lot. Um, so I haven't been writing recently. But I, when I was writing actively um, and actively on social media, I was interacting, yes, I mean, in terms of comments on the blog and people on Facebook and 
I mean, I'm, I'm on a whole bunch of different um, social media platforms. So when I'd write a post, it would publish to different social media platforms of mine. And then also I had, you know, I'd post photos and stuff like that on um, different, uh, you know, on Instagram, for example, or, or Facebook. So, okay. um, so yes, I was very actively involved and had a, a communication and a community. And actually that's how, when I first blogged, um, I was part of a blogging community and it, and it first was just the blogging community in general through word, Press, yeah, um, WordPress's community, and then it was uh, specifically gravitated towards the community, both of writers, you know, people who identify as writers, and people who identify as um, mental health advocates. So, and there's a lot of crossover in those two communities. Um, uh, many people with mood disorders um, are are writers. Um, it's a it's a, and many famous writers have had mood disorders. There's a, a big um, co, you know, big yeah, co, yeah, intersection there. Oh, um, yeah. Tell us about how your purpose changed over the years, and what started out as self help and has grown to helping others. And the things uh, that you are involved with that permit you to do that. Um, well, I, yeah, I think that over the years, as you mature, or as I've matured, I've known a lot of people who became mental health advocates right out, right off the, you know, out of the, right as soon as they were diagnosed, which, right. which I didn't do. Um, I mean, I was involved. Well, I, I guess I, I was a psychotherapist, so. <laughs> And I did do volunteer work in high school and in hospitals. So I actually do have a history of being a, a helper, you know, advocate, yeah. but, um, but in terms of the mental health advocacy, it just, um, I think it just followed. And I actually became involved in um, NAMI's, um, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, their programs. And they, you start with a peer to peer program. If you're somebody with a lived in lived experience of having a mental illness and, and there's like a, they identify um, a progression in your, you know, the life cycle of, of, of maturing with living with a, a mental illness. And at some point it's natural that people both with lived experience or with family members, you know, with who have somebody within their family that at one point in time, they're ready to do advocacy. And so um, that's sort of a, a natural progression. Um, where you're like, okay, now it's time to share my knowledge, you know, um, my experience. Right. Um, and so that's just sort of was a natural progression. And it came from uh, a lot from my involvement with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And, um, and I'm thankful for that organization. I was very involved in their Orange County um, uh, chapter when I was living down in Orange County, California. Do you feel people with mental illness uh, are sometimes not treated for other illnesses or comorbidities and, and just dismissed, dismissed as being, you know, psychosomatic? Without a doubt, without a doubt. And um, I mean, I'm lucky in that I've not had that experience. Um, I'm, I'm the way I present myself, the way I have a, a medical vocabulary, you know, I'm able to like... Yeah insist on you know respect from providers right. right but i do know that many people do have that experience and even my son i've even been told oh he does your son shouldn't be taken to all these different specialists and you know that's what the psychiatrist tells me yeah and then the specialists say your psychiatrist is wrong there's other things wrong with your son 
you know, he does need to see a gastroenterologist. He does need to see a neurologist. You don't, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not just all psychosomatic. It's like, because there's these comorbidities, like there's things that are actually related to each other. You know, the, the brain is a physical thing and, and the, the disorders that affect the brain are comorbid with other disorders sure. that are physical, physical disorders. In fact, there's a, uh, there's one of the examples is um, SUNY in New York, upstate New York, um, the State University of New York or whatever it's called. They yeah. identified what they called ALPIM, which was a genetic syndrome that involves comorbidities and anxiety, laxity, pain, immune, and mood. And they have d- identified that genetically. Like clinicians have noticed, you know, that these overlapping diagnoses, you know, that a lot of their patients had these other problems that they weren't psychosomatic, but they were comorbid. Um, And so you need right now, all we really can do, because we don't know how to treat that genetic syndrome yet, is to treat the symptoms. So you're not just treating the brain, which you have to treat, you have to treat you know, the immune system, you have to treat, you know, if you, if you have asthma or eczema or, you know, uh, you know, the immune issues, you have to treat the pain. If you have migraines or other, uh, you know, chronic pain disorders, you either, you have to treat everything. You have to treat the whole person, the whole body. Right. Uh, How have your spiritual beliefs affected your outlook on living with bipolar? Um, Well, it's, it's enabled me to see it as meaningful and to see it as something I've been able to reframe things so that rather than seeing myself as being um, burdened, even though it is a burden, (laughs) I see it as being purposeful, you know, so I'm able to see that, you know, that I have been, um, I wouldn't say I've been blessed, certainly not, but I have been, um, I, I don't, I, I, that, I have a disorder that enables me to help other people. You know, I think it's partly a good way of looking at it. It's just a way of reframing it. So, you know, whether or not it's true, you know, whether or not it's true to you saying, okay, I have this, what can I do with it? Yeah. What were the major turning points in your life? How did you see those transitions then? And how do you see them now? Um, well, it's interesting because when I look back, when my parents, my parents, at, uh, before they passed, um, at one point, my, my father had um, dementia, and then my mother had a stroke, and she had vascular dementia. And so both of them had dementia. And at that point, all of my experience, which in my life, I thought, wow, I have this very um, bizarre history, you know, like pre-med, and then law, and then psychology, and then, you know, and then real estate, but then all of a sudden, being in the position of making decisions about my parents' health, and wealth, you know, I mean, they're, you know what I mean, they're, you know, wealth as in managing, you know, their finances, and, 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 and managing their health care, and, and, you know, and understanding what they were going through mentally, you know, psychologically, and all that kind of stuff, every single thing, that I had gone through in my life, all of a sudden made sense. It's like everything that I've been through has enabled me to have skills that I needed right now. So it's, it's interesting because when you're in something, you don't necessarily see um, the benefit of it. You only, 
you don't really necessarily see the long view, but when you're mature in your life, you can look back and go, oh, this actually, my life makes some sense. Yeah. What would you say to someone newly diagnosed with a mood disorder uh, like depression or bipolar? What, what would you say to them? Um, I would say there's, there's hope okay. and then, and, and to get help and, and to understand that it, it can take time to get the right help. Um, you know, the, the right therapist, the right medication, um, it's trial and error right now, which is unfortunate, but that's just the reality, um, of, of where we are. Um, we're getting better at being able to identify what medications can help, you know, different people, but, um, but it's still basically trial and error. Um, in other words, don't go it alone. Don't what? Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Right. Get help. Yeah. What advice would you give to family members and loved ones of those living with serious brain disorders? Um, I would say the same thing. And unfortunately, one of the problems with a lot of people, aside from parents, parents, you're able to, if you're parents of, of minors, you're able to make decisions um, and get your kids help. But once you're, what, when your loved ones are adults, you cannot control their lives. So you have to kind of remember the serenity prayer because you can do the best you can do. And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to go and, and take their medication or, or, you know, or get, or, or, you know, or anything like that. And so that's very hard for people. And, and even so there are people whose family members are so severely ill that even if they are taking medication and stuff. So I, I think that just having um, compassion and yes. not and being non non judgmental is important. Yeah, that makes sense. What what takeaway message would you give to our audience concerning mental health illness? If you had to give a takeaway message, the takeaway is um, to not judge. Okay. And just the same thing I said to have for people with mental illness to have compassion, to listen, um, and um, and to know it. Well, twenty five percent of us have suffered or will suffer from a diagnosable mental illness. Uh, so um, I, I guess, you know, it's very important that we don't stigmatize those who are struggling. Yes, absolutely. What, Kit, what excites you the most uh, moving forward with your advocacy? Um, well, I enjoy public speaking. So I'm looking forward to the pandemic or is getting resolved enough that people can go out and and do the kind of work that I used to do in person. Right. Um, So, uh, which I haven't been able to do. Um, So, uh, but that's going forward. I would think one of the things that I'm excited about is uh, advances in in, in science. I'm a real geek and I, I, the advances in brain science are exciting to me. Um, and, um, the fact that there are people out there helping other people, um, and that there's a community out there and whether or not your local community has resources, there's online communities, um, you still can connect with things like, um, the, uh, National Alliance of Mental Illness or the, uh, DB, um, let me see, depression, bipolar, um, um, Alliance, DBSA, is that what it's called? Depression Bipolar uh, Support Alliance. Okay. Um, and they're um, online too. And so there are online support groups. So, um, and I think that those are, um, the communities out there are great. 
Kit, uh, we have a lot of people in our audience. If they want to contact you, how, how do they go about doing that? Well, they can go to kidomalley.com. Okay. Um, so that would be the best way. And all my social media platform links are there on every page. Okay. Um, and so they can click on those. I'm going to list that in the podcast notes. Thank you, Kit, for sharing your journey with us. I think I speak for everyone listening that we all respect your bravery and your courage in talking about this and giving us an insight into what it is like to live with being bipolar and the challenges it presents. I wish you good fortune and good thoughts going forward. Comments and suggestions to improve the podcast, uh, you can email us at it's a wrap with it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. Drop your email address there and we'll get you on the mailing list. We have a Facebook page and group. It's a wrap with rap Instagram. It's a wrap with rap podcast. And all the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap the podcast uncut. Thanks everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>